0: Well, good morning, and welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Carl Brower. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Uh, so far this year, we've been teaching through apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. And uh, and we've kind of reached the section of the series where we're going to be addressing other world religions and cults and things like this. We just finished talking about atheism last week. And so kind of the natural progression of things would have been to next cover uh, cults that would claim to be Christian but aren't, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and then move on to other non-religion, non-Christian religions like Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, things like that, and then to wrap things up with some sort of junk drawer of other small cults that have kind of had an impact. But instead, we're going to start with the junk drawer today because it worked a little better with our teaching schedule. But we are going to be moving on to Mormonism next week, then on to Islam and the, and the rest of these in the coming weeks. Uh, Today, we're going to consider five smaller systems of beliefs or cults uh, that have had some measure of influence in the world over the past 150 years or so. Uh, We'll be looking at witchcraft, Wicca stuff. We'll be looking at the Hebrew Roots Movement, the Black Hebrew Israelites, Scientology, and Christian science. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. Uh, We may even have a little time left over to talk about Jediism, which is an actual belief in the force as depicted in the Star Wars films. And uh, Pastafarianism, which is a group of people who worship a flying spaghetti monster. Yes, those are both real. And no, we will not actually be talking about either of them. But some of the stuff we will cover today isn't that far off. But since we'll be talking about some of these minor cults today, I thought we should start with a definition. What is a cult? Uh, We may tend to kind of define cults in our minds as being small groups of religious fanatics that have some sort of tragic ending. Uh, like the Branch Davidians in Waco in 1993 who had a 51-day standoff with the ATF and 76 of them ended up being killed, or the Jonestown incident or massacre in 1979 where over 900 people committed mass suicide because their leader, Jim Jones, told them to. But the reality is there are many cults that have not been captured, captured the attention of the people or the news headlines in quite that same dramatic fashion, Walter Martin, who uh, wrote one of the definitive works on the subject of cults, defines it this way. He says, a cult is any religious group which differs significantly in one or more respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as the normative expressions of religion in our total culture. That's basically a really long-winded way of saying any group of people that has religious beliefs but they don't fit into the major mainstream religions is a cult. So these groups, these cults tend... Uh, to have a charismatic leader who kind of spearheads the movement, keeps things moving forward through sheer will and determination or perhaps manipulation. This isn't always the case, but it's common enough to mention. Uh, Similarly, like any time the staff of Parkway gets together to play some sort of competitive sport, I don't always lose, but it happens often enough that it's worth mentioning. So let's get started by talking about Hebrew roots Hebrew roots, this group uh, has uh, other names, uh, Hebraic roots, Jewish roots, uh, Nazarene Judaism, and others. Uh, The basic beliefs of this group kind of focus primarily on trying to live like a first century Jew in some respects. And the reason is because Jesus was a first century Jew. Jesus obeyed the Torah perfectly, and so should we. They're basically just kind of asking, what would Jesus do back then? before the atonement. They generally believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and that salvation comes through him, but they still want to hold to the Torah. They want to try to obey the Old Testament law, follow the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. So they try to observe observe Sabbath. They uh, celebrate feasts, holy days, things like this. Uh, Many of them will learn and speak Hebrew, Uh, They will choose to only use the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, or uh, the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, And so a little bit of background. In the early 20th century, uh, there were several groups uh, that generally kind of held to these positions, but they were more ecclesiologically organized and had a structure and a hierarchy to their leadership, some of which continue on today. So these include things like Messianic Judaism, Uh, the Sacred Name Movement, the Worldwide Church of God, uh, and just the Church of God. And it was out of this last one, the Church of God, uh, that the Hebrew Roots movement began to take shape and kind of gain some traction in the late 1980s and early 1990s under the leadership of Dean Wheelock and his wife, Susan. Uh, Incidentally, they have a legal copyright on the name Hebrew Roots. If you go to their website, there's a little R with a circle around it next to Hebrew Roots. You can't use that name. So this movement, as it's been called, uh, kind of has been more grassroots in nature and has largely existed online. There are very few formal gatherings or meetings. Many of its adherents uh, will just attend a Jewish synagogue in their local community in order to participate in corporate worship. Um, but within this group or within this movement, this, this uh, Hebrew Roots movement, there are kind of differing levels of commitment to this belief system. So most Hebrew roots uh, adherents would say that you should obey the law of Moses. You should follow the Ten Commandments. You you should uh, submit yourself to the Mosaic law. A smaller contingent of that group would say that you must obey the laws of Moses for salvation. In order to be saved, you must obey these laws and obey them correctly and consistently and essentially perfectly. A smaller contingent of the group would go as as far as to reject the writings of Paul. They would say, uh, anything Paul wrote in the New Testament is out, doesn't count, we're not listening to that, primarily because many of Paul's writings refute the positions that they're wanting to hold. And then an even smaller contingent of the Hebrew Roots Movement would reject Jesus outright. They would hold to a more consistent uh, Jewish perspective of the Messiah having not come. Uh, So at the end of the day, they kind of have this dual righteousness in mind. So the the majority of the Hebrew roots adherents would say uh, that faith in Jesus is necessary, that you must believe upon Jesus as the Messiah, but that also you must do these works in order to be saved, that there's this dual righteousness. Uh, They would say Jesus was a Jew and he followed and obeyed the Torah, so we should too. And So you end up with this problem that they're generally denying the work of Christ. They deny that his life and his death and his resurrection have purchased righteousness for those who've been given the gift of faith, but instead that he has indeed come to save, uh, but there is work to be done on behalf of the individual for that salvation to come to fruition. So there's general belief in Christ as a Savior versus this perfect obedience that counts for believers, that has been fulfilled in Christ, him fulfilling that Mosaic law. So we are no longer under the law. We no longer have to keep the Sabbath. We no longer are called to abstain from certain foods. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, This is like a guy who's like a third string running back on the NFL championship team that just won the Super Bowl, but he insists that he cannot accept the trophy. He cannot say that he's a winner unless he throws as many touchdown passes as the star quarterback did. He doesn't understand what it means to be a part of something that was accomplished for him. So that's Hebrew roots. Next is black Hebrew Israelites. This group often gets confused with the Hebrew roots movement, and is sometimes even called Black Hebrew Roots, although that's not the moniker that they would give themselves. Uh, They would call themselves Black Hebrew Israelites. They might also call themselves Hebrew Israelites, or Black Hebrews, or Black Israelites, or African Hebrew Israelites. All of these names you'll find floating around. This idea, this notion, this group kind of came about in the late 1880s, kind of on the heels of of uh, the Jim Crow laws that were passed, uh, kind of moving African-Americans from one type of persecution to another. Uh, And in their frustration, uh, African-Americans found themselves identifying with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, a group of people that were uh, enslaved, a group of people that were consistently persecuted. And that identification with that group slowly morphed into a belief uh, that African-Americans are indeed the, living descendants of the actual tribes of Israel. And so you ended up with uh, a couple of guys uh, starting a couple of churches that kind of spearheaded this, this notion of uh, the black Hebrew Israelites, meaning that African-Americans are indeed the descendants of ancient Israel. You have a man named Frank Cherry, who started the Church of the Living God, the Pillar Ground Truth for All Nations, which is quite a mouthful for a church name. Uh, Side note, Frank Cherry is also the name of a white supremacist and a Klansman who was part of the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And another man named William Saunders Crowdy, who started Church of God and Saints of Christ. Both of these men claim to have had visions uh, showing them that black people were indeed the direct descendants of the tribes of ancient Israel, the descendants of Jacob, and that whites were the descendants of Esau. So the question is, what what exactly do they believe? So like the Hebrew Roots movement, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites are not really centralized or cohesive in their beliefs. There are many groups that would claim that moniker of black Hebrew Israelite, but their beliefs and practices vary greatly. Some are like the Hebrew Roots in that they have a Christological perspective. They believe in Jesus as Messiah, but they also adopt Jewish customs. They want to follow uh, the Torah. They want to obey the Mosaic law. Some would cling more tightly to the Jewish heritage and strive for greater faithfulness to the practices of Orthodox Judaism. Some are more nationalistic and are very far from traditional Judaism, leaning toward a more anti-Semitic and anti-white views, being kind of extremist and militant. And these are the ones that we tend to hear about, see on the news, things like this. They are genuinely anti-Semitic, anti-white Uh, You you may remember back in 2019, we had this issue take place at the Lincoln Memorial where we had these kids from Covington Catholic High School wearing these MAGA hats, and there was this strange kind of standoff between one of the kids and this Native American man named Nathan Phillips who was playing a drum, and uh, it was in the news, and uh, it was a big deal. Uh, One of the things that didn't make it into into the news, that the people that were instigating a lot of that conflict and strife were a group of black Hebrew Israelites that were instigating a lot of the the dissension between those groups. And so these kind of more militant extremist uh, versions of the black Hebrew Israelites have been connected with other shootings where Jews were the targets and things like this. And so most black Hebrew Israelites would denounce and uh, say that this, this, this extremist version of their uh, beliefs are, are contrary to what, what they hold. Uh, the most consistent thread though between all these different groups Uh, is that they believe that that African-Americans are indeed the true descendants of biblical Jews. Therefore, they're God's chosen people. Uh, And therefore, they are, in, in some sense, rejecting the biblical doctrine of election, where God chooses his people based only on his sovereign good pleasure, and not because of anything in us. God does not choose his people based on the color of their skin or because of their deeds. God chooses whom he will have based on his good pleasure alone. And so the primary problem that we're dealing with there is this rejection of the the way that election works as well as this distinction that's based on race. The scriptures clearly reject this idea. Galatians 3, verse 28 says, "'There is neither Jew nor Greek. "'There is neither slave nor free. "'There is no male and female, "'for you are all one in Christ Jesus.'" And in Romans 10, verses 11 through 13, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And so the lack of distinction between Jew and Greek would also extend to a lack of distinction between black and white. And so there is, a, in addition to this uh, unbiblical distinction, you also have this elevation of works over faith in regards to following the Mosaic law. So that's black Hebrew Israelites. Next is witchcraft and Wicca. Right, this one has been around since essentially the beginning. I mean, if we look in the scriptures, we find witchcraft and things like it mentioned uh, on a number of occasions. You find uh, Pharaoh uh, had sorcerers uh, that he called in to imitate some of the miracles that God was doing through Moses, the turning a staff into a snake and things like this. Uh, in First Samuel chapter 28, you've got Uh, King Saul, who uh, wants to talk to Samuel, the prophet, but Samuel's dead. And so Saul uh, gets his guys to find him a medium, find him a witch, uh, so that hopefully he can talk to Samuel even though he's already dead. Uh, And this witch, this medium, is uh, the kind of witch of Endor, the location she's from. It's not the forest moon of Endor from uh, uh, the Star Wars movies. Uh, It's just a location where Uh, Saul found this witch. So uh, in addition to that, you see in Exodus 22, Leviticus 20, uh, some explicit commands to not allow witches to live, that they should be put to death. Uh, These texts were uh, primary in uh, justifying some of what we saw in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe and America during the Salem witch trials, where you had people that were acting funny and people didn't understand why. And so they accused them of witchcraft and put them to death. Uh, then, uh, over 100 years later, a woman named Margaret Murray wrote a book in 1921 called *The Witch Cult in Western Europe*. Uh, this book becomes and remains one of the primary texts uh, explaining and uh, outlining what uh, witchcraft is like, what the uh, what the cult of witchcraft is about. She contended that after the Salem witch trials, uh, that uh, witchcraft and its ilk kind of went underground uh, in order to avoid persecution and these kinds of things, uh, and whether or not her assertions are correct has not been established. But at the end of the day, what we want to know is what is witchcraft, right? What, what is this thing, this witchcraft, this wicca, what is all this stuff? Uh, the notion of witches and witchcraft has permeated our culture in a ton of places. We're already pretty familiar with the idea of it. Uh, it's one of the most popular uh, outfits to dress up as on Halloween, We see it in lots of literature and movies, The Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, Ursula and the Little Mermaid, right? Witchcraft, we find it in Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, things like that. There was a sitcom in the 60s called Bewitched where the wife is actually a witch, but she tries to keep it a secret. Uh, All these strange things. And so you end up with a, a, a weird cultural understanding of witchcraft, but what is it really? Well, in the 50s and 60s, you have a man named Gerald Brosseau Gardner who wrote a book called Witchcraft Today. And this has been one of the, uh, another one of the kind of primary sources for understanding witchcraft. Uh, he is the kind of father of modern Wicca. Uh, the, uh, the beliefs that they hold are things like believing in the goddess, uh, which is some sort of ethereal being that somehow is in charge of all things. Sometimes the god is added, depending on how uh, accommodating they want to be to males. But So they might call it the goddess. They might call it the god and the goddess. Uh, witchcraft, Wicca, is pantheistic in nature, which is the idea that uh, there is no distinction between creature and creator. Uh, there is no uh, god who is apart from his creation Uh, but instead that the creator is somehow woven into the fabric of creation itself, Uh, that the the god or the goddess uh, is woven into the trees and the grass and the moon and the stars and the wind and everything else. Uh, And so those who practice Wicca look for power and fulfillment and joy by somehow tapping into this this power that exists through the goddess as it exists uh, in all of creation. While being pantheistic, it's, it is also a polytheistic uh, approach to religion, primarily, I think, to be inclusive and to increase their numbers. If you want to practice Wicca and still be a Hindu or still be a Buddhist or even still be a Christian, they are happy to have you. Uh, I have a friend of the family who uh, uh, many years ago moved to a new uh, town, started going to a new church, made some new friends. And before long, she started sharing with these friends difficulties in her life. They shared difficulties in their lives. They all agreed they were going to get together and pray. And so they said, let's meet at this park at 10 p.m. And uh, our friend said, oh, that's interesting. 10 p.m. is a strange time to meet for prayer in a park, but okay. And so they met and they said, let's go into these woods and that's extra weird. And before you know it, the lady that's kind of leading the thing says, let's all confess our difficulties and struggles to the moon and tell the moon about all of our problems. And uh, so you had this woman who was attending a Christian church, claiming Christianity, and yet continuing to practice practice Wicca. And so they're happy to have you. If uh, if if you wanted to be polytheistic, they're okay with that. But generally what they want is spirituality apart from traditional religion. They do indeed practice magic. They have rituals and ceremonies where they will call upon deities to assist them or attempt to speak to the dead or communicate with or pray to celestial bodies like the moon and the stars and this sort of thing. Uh, They explicitly deny the existence of Satan. They want to distance themselves from Satanism, uh, obviously because of the negative imagery that comes with that. It's not uh, good PR to be all about Satan. Uh, but the reality is, you are either a part of the kingdom of God or you are a part of the kingdom of the enemy. Uh, but their general creed is if it harm none, do what you will, right? So it's this modern sensibility that you can do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting somebody else. Uh, initially, this, uh, this Wicca organization, as envisioned by Gardner, this man who wrote this, this book and, and it kind of established this practice. Uh, was an organized thing. There were organizations of covens, which were groups of 12 to 15 people, primarily women, but there were men, as well as a priesthood that oversaw the covens and, and kind of uh, kept an eye on things, make sure things were going the way they're supposed to go or whatever. Uh, and so a lot of the worshiping, a lot of the ceremonies took place in the nude uh, to be as, as connected to the, uh, to the world and its power as possible. And then more recently, in modern uh, Wicca practices, there have been some changes. Uh, they have distanced themselves from the term witch. They don't want to call themselves witches. That's that's uh, also gained a uh, negative connotation and tends to associate with Satanism, although it is still witchcraft that they're practicing. Uh, they have decreased the nudity. That has been a uh, apparently a downfall for some of them. Uh, and later publications uh, that... Uh, as they've tried to increase their numbers, as they've tried to keep their organization going, they have encouraged self-initiation. So there's no longer a dependence upon some sort of structure of a priesthood or covens. It's basically, read this book. If you want to do it, you're in. And, uh, and so that's kind of interesting. Uh, the primary problem with this belief system, obviously, is there is, as, as well as a denial of the existence of Satan, there is, of course, a denial of the existence of a triune God. Uh, And so they do not acknowledge the God of the scriptures, the God of the universe, the creator of all, and they do not acknowledge his son as the only way to him. So that is Wicca and witchcraft. Next is Christian science. Christian science. This is an organization, a religion, a cult uh, that was founded by Mary Baker Eddy, uh, a woman who lived in the uh, mid to late 1800s. She experienced a miraculous healing After being injured, she slipped and fell on some ice and sustained some injuries. According to her, the doctor said that her injuries were internal, that they were terrible, and it was going to be not something she could recover from. And uh, she then subsequently read the scriptures. She read the passage about Jesus healing a paralytic and was immediately healed. And she says she experienced better life and health than she ever did from that moment forward. Interestingly, she still sued the city for money because she said she was suffering from the effects of that fall, but her conclusion was the scriptures have the power to heal, Uh, and she began to want to seek and find out how that works. How is it that I read this book and I'm healed because that's clearly how it works, and I want to teach others how to do it, and so she studies on her own. She thinks on her own, and she writes a book called Science and Health in 1875, This book has since become considered a sacred and inspired writing that is studied alongside the scriptures, Uh, and then she changed the title to Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. Uh, The last 100 pages of her book are testimonies of people who have claimed to have been healed just by reading the book. So the focus of Christian science is on healing. Prayer and scripture reading are taught to be used as methods of bringing truth to bear on a physical ailment or an injury or a depression or a mental incapacitation or something like this, uh, many Christian Science practitioners reject all modern medicine. As a result of this focus, it is not a requirement of the church, but many Christian Science practitioners reject going to the doctor. They won't take their kids to the hospital when they get sick. Uh, they won't seek out uh, modern treatments for cancer and things like this. They will merely pray and read the scriptures and hope things get better. So. Mary Baker Eddy, while claiming to follow the scriptures as her only authority, she makes that claim numerous times. She also rejects several central doctrines of orthodox Christianity. She rejects the Trinity. She says, quote, "The theory of three persons in one God, that is a personal Trinity or triunity, suggests polytheism." She also rejects the atonement. She says, quote, "One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. The atonement requires constant self-immolation on the sinner's part. That God's wrath should be vented upon his beloved son is divinely unnatural. Such a theory is man-made. She also says, the material blood of Jesus is no more efficacious to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the, quote, accursed tree than when it was flowing in his veins as he went daily about the father's business. She also rejects the very deity of Christ himself, she says, quote, if there had ever existed such a person as the Galilean prophet, meaning Jesus, it would make no difference to me. So she denies these central doctrines while continuing to claim the Bible's authority. And regarding the Christian narrative, uh, the creation narrative in the Bible, she accepts the creation of man in the image of God, as described in Genesis, but she rejects the rest of creation narrative because the material world, in her estimation, is bad. She has a Gnostic view of humanity. She believes that the Spirit is good and can be healed through the reading of Scripture, but everything physical is bad. She has, like Thomas Jefferson, chosen uh, to accept the parts of the Bible she agrees with and she likes and reject the parts of the Bible that she does not like and does not agree with. So that's a quick overview of Christian science. Last but not least... Buckle up, we're going to do a little Scientology. It gets a little bananas. Here we go. So this was a, a, a cult that was founded by a man named L. Ron Hubbard, who lived from 1911 to 1986. He wrote a book called Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. This book started as a new take on psychotherapy and then ended up as a religion. Uh, he wrote many other books. He doesn't ever claim any uh, divine revelation. He just claims to kind of have figured it all out. Scientology is something that is most known for some of the big names that are associated with this belief system. So People like Tom Cruise and John Travolta and Kirstie Alley are all practicing Scientologists, and so they tend to uh, cause Scientology to be in the news a little more often than they might otherwise be. They steer clear from taking a general, uh, specific stance on God, but focus their efforts on what is a therapeutic and gradual improvement of the self through counseling, and that counseling they call auditing. Uh, So I'm now going to have to give you some terminology in order to understand how Scientology works. We're going to going to list off a few words that L. Ron Hubbard made up for the purposes of establishing uh, the methodology of his religion. Uh, he made up lots of words, but I'm only going to share a few, of the, a few of them with you now in order to help explain what they do and how they do it. The terminology you need to know is that things that are bad, bad experiences, bad choices, bad uh, environments, sad things, anything negative that's ever happened to you is stored as a memory in your brain called an engram. Engrams are bad stuff that happen to you. The subconscious mind that we might know from kind of you know, modern psychotherapy, this place where your brain works and thinks and considers things, but you don't actively consciously think about those things. He calls that the reactive mind. The counseling that they would do, he calls auditing. The person who does the counseling is an auditor. The person who receives the counseling, at least in the beginning, is called a pre I'll explain what that means in a moment. And then the soul, the spiritual part of a person, is called a thetan. Thetan coming from the Greek word theta, which means life. And then lastly, just for funsies, I'll share uh, that the word used to describe someone who is not a Scientologist is wog. Right? Think of like Harry Potter, where they call non-magical people muggles. Scientologists call you and I wogs. Uh, the goal is, of Scientology is to use this auditing to remove engrams from the reactive mind. So take these bad experiences and remove them from your reactive mind, your subconscious. Get them out of there. Uh, leading ultimately to the complete elimination of the reactive mind altogether, leaving the person what they would call clear, which is why someone who just begins the, this auditing process is a pre clear Now, Scientologists have these various levels that you can achieve. You start off as a pre-clear, and over time you become referred to as clear because you've mostly done a good job of getting those engrams out of there. Then you become what's known as an operating thetan. An operating thetan is a person who is on their way to perfection and absolutely removing their, their reactive mind altogether. There are currently eight levels of operating thetan in the Scientologist church. There have been promises of levels 9 through 15 being released, uh, but they have not come out yet. So currently, you can only get to level 8. The purpose of these levels is to purportedly get you closer and closer to perfection, meaning that your reactive mind is completely and forever removed. You can no, you're no longer creating new engrams, and so you have gained control over yourself, over your future. Even your surroundings, you, if you reach the upper levels of being an operating thetan, you can control people around you, the way that they react, the way that they think. You can control your environment. You can control objects. You can even control uh, whether or not you're actually going to die and be reborn again. The reincarnation idea uh, ends when you reach the upper levels of being an operating thetan. So currently level eight is the highest you can get, and it's only administered aboard the Scientology cruise ship called the Free Winds. The Free Winds is a cruise ship that goes around the ocean with people trying to get to level eight on it. And there's lots more to tell you about that, but you'll just have to Google it. So each of these levels, not surprisingly, costs money. It's like taking a college course. Things start off about $650 to $800 to take a course, which comes with some books that you need to read and then some activities that you need to complete. So it starts off 650, 800 bucks or so, quickly gets into the multiple thousands. And when you get to about level seven of being an operating thetan, you're spending 30 to 40 grand per year, and you're working on level seven for decades. And so it sounds like it might be just a money-making scheme come up with by L. Ron Hubbard, but we don't need to figure that out. We can just let him tell us. Here's a quote. Writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. L. Ron Hubbard used to be a science fiction writer before he wrote his Dianetics. So he says, writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. If a man really wants to make a million dollars, the best way would be to start his own religion. So he did. So the problems of Scientology certainly are the denial of a triune God, this Gnostic view of the the spiritual Thetan being the valuable thing, uh, that your body is some sort of weird meat cage that holds your Thetan, uh, and so it's, a, it's an interesting uh, and almost laughable belief system, and yet many, many people hold to it and are striving uh, to work their way up that ladder. So let me wrap this up. At the end of the day, all these cults have at least one thing in common. The adherents, and sometimes their leaders as well, are looking for something. They're looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, for value, and for comfort, in a broken and a sinful world. And what they seek is never going to be found in the control of their own minds or over their own environments or over their own circumstances. The comfort and the peace that is sought by Hebrew roots, that is sought by black Hebrew Israelites, by Wicca, by the Church of Christian Science, the Church of Scientology is only found in the good news of the kingdom, that God is setting the sin-scarred world to rights through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only way to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are a good Father who gives good gifts to his children. And so while we may think about these strange cults that we've never really personally interacted with, we may not know anyone who practices these things, we might look at these things and laugh. We might look at these things and say, how silly. And while we wouldn't be wrong, we pray that you'll help us to remember these are men and women and even children who've been created in your image, who need the gospel. They need the truth of Christ. And so we pray for those who are practicing these things, uh, hoping to find what they're seeking, but knowing uh, full well that they will not find it apart from you. So we ask for you to be gracious, to reveal yourself to those who are far from you and, and chasing after false idols, who are believing false doctrine, who are teaching heresy. We ask for you to, uh, to bless them with your mercy and your grace, to reveal the truth of your word to them that it might be illuminated to their hearts who Christ is and what he's done. And so we ask for you to help us to be gracious and to be patient uh, with those who think wrongly about what is true. Uh, that we might be faithful to share the good news with those who are perishing. We thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to, uh, to think about these things together and pray that we will be mutually encouraged by one another's faith as we prepare to gather again. It's in Christ that we pray, amen.